All right. So what do you guys say? You want to uh, do a show? I'm good. Yeah, uh, the dog was fine. All right. Was uh, barking at something. Who's bringing us in? You are. Okay. You know, you guys, every time, every time, right? Back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I am Paul Spataro, and I am joined today by a veritable cornucopia of podcasting goodness. As per usual, I am here with my good buddy, Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. How you doing? I'm doing great. You love the way I say that. I know. (laughs) How are you doing? And Dr. Bill Robinson. The doctor is in. Otherwise known as Doug. (laughs) And we have a special guest with us tonight. uh, The guy who I consider to have the coolest voice in podcasting. Mr. Jim Dietz. Wow, thanks a lot, man. That's uh, that's a pretty bold statement, considering <laughs> all the different voices in podcasting. <laughs> but thank you. You know, it's uh, you just you were born with pipes, my friend. What can I tell you? Uh, it's good to have you on. Jim is a. If, if anybody's listening, you probably already know this, but if you don't, Jim is a regular on in the Legion of Dudes and does a plethora of podcasts. And Jim, why don't you pimp your shows right now before we get into other stuff? If you go to hhwlod.com, you can find a whole network of shows. Uh, we have uh, Long Box of Doom, which is a comic-centric show. We have Real Heroes, where we look at uh, superhero and comic book films. Uh, Walking Dead TV podcast, Out Now with Aaron and Abe, our, our um, new release movie review show. Um, Tales from the Attic with Donnie Salvo, The Black Box. We have a, a whole uh, spectrum of, of podcasting goodness. So if you're looking for... Uh, Good podcasting to listen to, and uh, you can also check out my uh, bi-weekly uh, review blog there, uh, the Uniquely Geekly Reader, um, every uh, every other week, and uh, check that out. So hhwled.com is where you can find all of that good stuff. Yeah, I do not recommend that any of our listeners stop getting the Two True Freak stuff, but the HHWLOD stuff is a great addition to it. If you're looking for good stuff, they have a ton. So what are we Absolutely. doing this week, guys? Wait, Any, anybody... Anybody got anything? I got a song for Jim. Okay, well, I'm, I'm scared, but go ahead. You're scared. <laughs> All right. Big Jim is our guest from the Long Box of Doom. If he was a sound effect, it'd be crack a Big Jim. Big Jim. So listen up while he is here, because when he's done, he'll fly away on Majolnir. Big Jim. Big Jim Dietz. <laughs> And a crack a to you as well. <laughs> uh, is that uh, is that Jimmy Dean? Uh, yes. Well, that, yeah, that's he's, me he's, doing Jimmy. He's spinning in his grave right now, my friend. <laughs> with with some sausage. <laughs> well, I, I just always I remember him from uh, Diamonds Are Forever. Oh yeah, Willard White. It's uh, Baja. We don't own anything in Baja. Baja. All right. Anybody got any comics things to share? And uh... 
San Diego's coming up. Any uh, chance? Any chance you're headed to San Diego, or do you have more important matters pending in Pittsburgh? I've never been to San Diego, oddly enough. The biggest con I've ever been to is New York. Um, I'm six five. I don't really travel in planes well, mm. uh, so I, I don't know. But uh, I, there are always a lot of good announcements that come out of San Diego and new things come in. So that's always fun. Yeah, I, I I've been to the New York con several times and. Through a friend, I uh, have talked to the guy who owns Oni. I think he owns. He may just run uh, Oni Press, and he keeps telling me every time I go to the New York Con, he says, "You know, you really got to get to San Diego. You haven't experienced it until you've been to San Diego." But when I live a half an hour train ride from New York City, it seems really, really difficult to take a plane across the country and pay for a hotel and go to San Diego. You know. We did yeah, I mean, I mean, New York is crazy enough. I, I can't even imagine uh, San Diego. You know, just the times I've been to New York, it's just been mass hysteria, dogs and cats living together, insane. You know, it's crazy, crazy stuff. So, um, well, according according to this one guy, even though it's a bigger con that they actually have more people, he seems to feel it's better organized and that the crowd control is more well done so that you don't feel like there are times in the New York con and I'm sure you've experienced it too, Jim, where you're walking down an aisle and you're just stuck in this sea of humanity and you can't move an inch in any direction. And, you know, I don't get claustrophobic, but I feel like I almost should be claustrophobic in that group. Uh, I, I do have to say, you know, the antidote to that, and I found out this year is heroes con. Wait, no, where is heroes con? Where is that? It's in, it's in uh, Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. Okay. Hear me out. I know it's in the South, but hear me out. Okay. It's very comic centric. Like New York Con, San Diego have become multimedia events. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, you know, they have comic books, but they also have anime and video and video games and action figures and everything else. Heroes Con is very much a comic book convention. And like you can see, you know, major creators like, you know, uh, like I saw, J- I, I met Jason Aaron and, and Matt Fraction and Kelly did, uh, did Naconic and stuff. Um, uh, you know, because they're there, but they're not there with Marvel. So they're just hanging out, waiting for people to come by and get their autograph, talk to them, whatever, buy their books. Uh, it's very comic-centric. It's not nearly as crowded as New York. There are a lot of really great deals. I mean, if you like to do any shopping in the con, and it's not nearly the the, the congested, you know, cluster that uh, that New York Comic Con has become. And mm-hmm. I, just, I, w- I can't say enough nice things about it. I just had a really good time there. It's you know, generally a comic book convention. Right. What what I did last year, which really worked out well for me, is I went with my son on Thursday to New York Comic Con, which is a half day show. It starts in the afternoon, uh, and you generally can only get tickets for that if you have the four day pass. So that day is probably about half the people that the other three days are. So that's really not bad at all. So I don't feel that. You know, I mean, my son's not a, a baby. He's 15 years old, but I still don't feel comfortable having him kind of rushed off to another area or whatever. Uh, so I feel comfortable that, you know, we hang out together, we walk around together, and, and we don't have that mass of people. And then I took the day off from work on Friday, and I went, but I just went with a couple of my buddies, and I, you know, if we got separated, we got separated. Who cares? So, you know, I, I enjoyed it that way, and I, I didn't even bother with Saturday and Sunday this past year. Everybody still with me? I feel, hear a lot of silence. I'm here. I didn't want to interrupt. 
<laughs> Please feel free to interrupt at will. <laughs> that's what our show is based on. <laughs> If you don't, Paul, just keep talking, man. So yeah, please, nobody wants that. <laughs> yeah, heaven forbid somebody talk in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I think you're bringing a unique thought process to this whole thing. Tonight's guest, Marcel. Marcel, take it away. <laughs> I wonder if he's ever been on a podcast. Is he even still alive? No, I don't think he is. I think he Aww. passed a few years ago. Now you see, now you feel bad. No, I do. No, feel because bad. because we could still have him on the podcast. Nobody know the difference. <laughs> I, walking I, again, walking against the wind. Personally, I never found the whole mime thing all that interesting, but <laughs> that's so, because uh, you're from New York. You talk with your hands. You would be a great mime. Would you? Know, you? I, you know, being an Italian from New York, I do talk with my hands, and I was introduced. And my fists, pow! Uh, I've, I've, ne- I've never been that much of a fighter. I, I when when I deal with fists, it's usually having them hit me, so I, I try to avoid fights when when possible. Uh, but I, I I was introduced to a politician one time, and we were having this great conversation. But every time I would make a point because I'm Italian and I use my hands when I speak, I would kind of wave my hands around and him being a politician has never seen a hand waving around that he didn't want to shake. That in the course of a 10 minute conversation, he must've shaken my hand six times. <laughs> probably searching you for weapons. Yeah. Don't even get me started. <laughs> he wasn't Anthony Weiner, was he? You know, <laughs> Anthony Weiner used to, before he was famous at all, he used to uh, come to the train. When I lived in Sheepshead Bay, he used to come to the train station that I had to go to to go to the city for work. And uh, he would come there and campaign, and he would try and walk up to people on the, this platform and introduce himself and hand out his campaign literature. And, uh, you know, at that time, I had never heard of him, but he came over to me, and I just told him, look, hit the road. I'm not interested in hearing your shtick. But I've seen it. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but that didn't come out for another. Get your I mean, wiener and get the hell out of here. I mean, man. we're literally talking like twenty years ago that he was campaigning on the train platform. So, did anybody read any comics this week? Uh, I did, man. I've uh, I've blown through almost the entire run of uh, of uh, New Fifty Two Aquaman. I had sworn off DC with the whole New Fifty Two thing. I frankly could give a rat's ass less, but. Uh, if you recall, back at uh, Megacon this year, I ran into uh, Paul Pelletier, and I love the guy. You know, I love his work. I think he's a fantastic artist. Had no idea what he was working on present day because I hadn't seen him in quite a while. You know, I've seen his work anywhere, and he had some pages. You know, the actual pages from uh, an issue of Aquaman. I, I don't know which one it was. I want to say it was like seventeen or something like that, but I, I don't remember. And I was looking at it going, this is awesome. When did he ever do Aquaman? So, I, you know, we were, we were speaking and uh, he told me, you know, he was the current artist on it and everything. So it got me intrigued that even though I'm not interested in New 52, even though I really don't like the whole reboot thing and all that, I was still curious to, to check it out. I finally have gotten around to it. And uh, I got to be honest, I'm, I'm really into it. I think it's fantastic. It's a really good book. And it's really odd because I, I know this is, you know, extremely unlikely that it's the case. But Michael Bailey and I were talking about characters a while back, characters that we feel like 
comic companies keep trying to bring back and keep trying to rejuvenate, yet mm-hmm. every time they do it, they do the same exact take every time, and the book will come out and do, you know, less than a dozen issues and then fade away again. And I always felt like Aquaman was one of those characters that could be great again, but every time they bring him back, they'd do the same damn thing all over again. Captain Marvel was another one. Captain Marvel, and Shazam, Captain Marvel. Shazam, yeah. And, you know, Mike and I did, a, like, a whole show on that, as I recall. And damned if this Aquaman book really doesn't feel to me like somebody was listening. Now, again, I, it's not ego speaking. I'm sure that's not the case. But what I mean is the take that they're doing with Aquaman on this book really appeals to me because it's addressing all those issues. And it's, it's I think it's run. great. It's yeah, I think it's really I mean, fantastic. You, you got to give credit where it's due. And, and uh, it's just been, you know, like the, it's been intriguing because there's been almost a little mystery behind it and what his history is with all of these people that he's been interacting with. Uh, I've, I've definitely fallen behind on it, so I, I can't give you the current stuff on it. But the artwork has been consistently good no matter who was drawing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's been one of the best series. That's been consistently good in the uh, DC 52. All Star Western's been consistently good in the DC 52. Mm-hmm. Batman has been consistently good. And uh, I may be drawing a blank at that point as to any others that have been. Jim, you said you buy three. Uh, anything else that you'd add to those three? I've really been enjoying Justice League Dark since Jeff Lemire took over. I've heard that, uh, but I haven't read any of those. Would you them- you'd recommend that? Yeah, I, I would recommend picking it up. I think it was issue six or seven where Lemire took over from Peter Milligan. Uh, but he really kicked into high. Um, Michael Jannon is doing the art, and he is, I know, not very well known now, but he will be. His art is incredible. Um, it's one of the best drawn books that DC puts out, and that's saying a lot. Uh, they have a lot of, you know, well well crowd, we have well, you know, nice looking books anyway. Um, I've been really enjoying uh, the Scott Snyder and Lemire crossover Rot World with the Swamp Thing and the Animal Man. I've been following those since. I think I dropped Animal Man last month, but I'm still reading Swamp Thing. And I think the third DC title I'm getting is Astro City, which I guess doesn't really count, but <laughs> um, I guess it's ostensibly a Vertigo book. But right. it's, uh, you know, DC. I just, I've been really cutting back a lot on, on the main. Uh, DC Core, I really, I just, I'm, I've tried, you know, I tried some of the new 52 books. I just did not really like the direction they were going with a lot of the main characters, you know, a lot of the, the core books, you know, Superman, Batman, you know, Teen Titans, Justice League. You know, I, I, I've given them several chances and not really, uh, they haven't really taken for me, but I've been reading a lot more indie comics, uh, you know, a lot, a lot, and, uh, you know, so a lot more of the Marvel Now stuff. So, yeah, I think the Marvel, Marvel Now reboot effort has been a lot more of a lesson of how it's done than the DC one. Instead of just throwing, you know, throwing everything away and, and starting it all new, just go in new directions, bring in new teams with an enthusiastic vision for the book because most of their new stuff has been pretty high quality. Uh, as far as that Justice League Dark stuff, do you, ha- do you have to have read the earlier issues to kind of know what's going on, or can you just jump in right with Lemire? You pretty much jump in right with Rainier's Lemire. It's funny because one of my favorite uh, books from the New 52 was Frankenstein, Agent of Shade. 
I just thought that was an awesome book. Just really well, well, and that was in, you know Lemire as well. But that got canceled, and when it did, he jumped over to Justice League Dark and brought Frankenstein with him. Mm-hmm. So that's a good point to jump on is when he starts writing. I, I was reading the Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo Batman for a while because I really enjoyed the Capullo art quite a bit. Right. But I really have had a problem with the way Snyder is ending his stories. Like going back to Court of Owls, I mean, it's a great idea, cool concept and, and, and everything, but like the ending, which is kind of meh. And then Death of, Death of the Family, the ending there. Oh, Joker falls off a cliff. Yeah. Nobody, huh? Wow. Uh, never <laughs> seen that before, you know? So I, I, I was, I've been kind of disappointed with him, although I really dug what he did on American Vampire. Um, I, I kind of dropped the, the Batman books. I might check out Zero Year when it's in trade or something, but. Yeah, I've heard a lot of great things about American Vampire. I was figuring I'm trying to pick up some trades on that. But I, I hardly recommend the new Valiant books. They've, yeah. been, they've been great. And yeah, if you haven't checked them out, do so. I mean, they have sales and comiXology for them all the time. You know, sometimes they offer free first issues. Just check it out. Seriously, they've been really putting out some quality stuff. Yeah, I never, I never read any of their original run. That, that pretty much came, I think, while I was... It was either while I was in my uh, comic hiatus... Or when I first came back and I really hadn't stretched into very much indie stuff at all. So I, I hadn't read this stuff. I, I heard that they just they just rebooted uh, Quantum and Woody, which people are saying is probably the best, you know, like that they saved the best for last at this point. Yeah, it's all been really strong, though. Archer and Armstrong has been Fred Van Lente. Uh, and some, I mean, there's a lot of new artists that I, that I really am not familiar with and, and some old as well. I mean, they've just been really doing a great job just putting out quality comics and uh, not a confusing continuity at all. You don't have to have read the Valiant stuff before to, to follow it at all. And, uh, yeah, I just, I, I just highly recommend their, their books across the board. I was up to about issue five or six of Phantom Stranger. Are you guys, uh, how's that been going past that point? has been pretty good well he's all tied in with that trinity war did you read the twin okay. trinity war preview they had like some yet, sort no. of pantheon well uh, they had some sort of pantheon of gods you know sentencing him pandora and the question oh that one yeah wasn't that a free comic book day i think yeah there I was so. uh right right that was yeah that was uh right that was the question uh phantom stranger which uh I'm sure I don't know if everybody's read who who he is. I know Paul and I know because we've talked about it. And actually, you just did it on your show too. That he's a you know, spoiler, Judas Iscariot, right? And and Pandora, and, uh, who's Pandora? But they they don't say who the question is because the, that's the thing they wanted to wipe away the identity of the guy because of his pride or something. But didn't they say he was Prometheus who gave man fire? Wasn't there some hinting at that? that that's who he was. For granting uh, man knowledge, it might that's have been. kind of I, what I, I got. Might have that. I might have missed that. I mm. just, um, I, know, I know he's a big deal in the Trinity War coming up. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be along for the ride, but. But on some other comic news, uh, I picked up the prequel uh, Tales from Year Zero uh, of Pacific Rim. Uh, I don't know I if that too wasn't that great. Yeah, what is it like? Uh, there's like four stories. I mean, I burned right through that. It was, yeah, it was 25 bucks. It's a hardcover, but I wanted to do something to promote the movie so that they'll do another one. And and I think the stories, you don't need the stories for the movie, but it does fill in some nice holes and, and gives a little bit more good backstory to some of the characters in the movie. Now, but everybody I, could, I know who's seen this movie is saying it's outstanding. 
and yet it seems like there's a an, a campaign to try and sabotage it at the box office. Yeah, I know. I don't understand what's going on. I mean, it's like, well, I mean, I think it's still made more than they projected it to, but it still seems that it's it, it's it's hurting. What it was made for like 180, and it's only made 38 million, I think. Well, me and my son are going to go to the matinee on Thursday, so they're going to get my twelve dollars to add to that. Okay. It was super fun. I don't know. Have you guys seen it yet? Yeah, I I have. Okay. Yeah. I just thought it was super fun. I mean, we had emo Superman, you had PTSD Iron Man so far this year, and then you know Kirk, Kirk and Spock in a bromance. It just this is the real like fun movie this summer for me. You know, it just um it, it's just fun. It doesn't take itself too seriously. It knows what it is, and it just delivers. I, I just it's, like it. And so it's such a spectacle too. It's great. Yeah, and, and, and you know the, the thing is, it's it's Del Toro, but people are trying to present it as if it's Michael Bay. It you know it, Del Toro's got a, got a, a, a history uh, of you know things that Michael Bay doesn't do. Michael Bay is all slow motion shots and action that you can't follow. There was no real slow mo. I don't really think there was any slow motion shots in this, Jim. I mean, it was all the mechs move slow because they even in the CGI they looked like they had weight and they had mass to them. I mean, I thought the CGI was great. The detail in the world that they created was great. Down to the the faded flags and symbols on the gantry that rolled out the gypsy uh, the gypsy danger right in the first few scenes of the movie. I mean, it was just so highly detailed with everything. And everything looked used. You know, I mean, it right. didn't look all bright, shiny CGI. It looked like they'd been using it for a few years to go after these kaiju and. Uh, I don't know. I just really, I really liked a lot of things about it. And if you want to see it, I recommend seeing it on the biggest screen you can find. I saw an IMAX 3D. I'm not a big fan of 3D, but in this case, it was well worth it. I mean, it was just, like you said, beautifully detailed. Even little things like the rain coming off the mechs, you know, as oh, yeah. the wind, you know, and things like that. Just kind of um, those kind of details are just crazy. All right, so I'm mm-hmm. stoked. I'm looking forward to going to see this. Scott, it sounds like this one might be up your alley after a couple that uh, you've had to avoid. I, I would really like to see this. Um, I remember when uh, it was first being teased. It seems like a couple years ago, and nobody really seemed to know what it was about. Somebody or other uh, clued me in that it was going to be like the definitive giant monster movie, and it kind of intrigued me and everything, and I've, I've been... You know, keeping an ear out for what people are saying about it, and I definitely want to go see it. My problem is I'm seriously broke right at the moment, but I want to go see it, uh, like Jim said, you know, see it on the biggest screen I can and all that. I don't really care about 3D, but I, I would definitely like to see it on IMAX, so uh, hopefully it'll survive at the theater long enough for me to be able to, to do that, because I want to support it. So I think the next I, time I the wife wants to, to go to Outbacks, you say, honey, Pacific Rim. <laughs> And I, I picked up that Pacific Rim uh, digitally. It was cheaper than $25. So. Oh, well, I, I was just trying to trying to help out my local comic shop. And, and uh, he said that he had ordered a bunch of them and there was only two left. Now, I don't know what a bunch is, but I know for him that was he probably ordered at least a dozen or more. And uh, there was only one left when that's, I was that's done. That's good movement on a book that size. I, I don't think you expect to move, you know, 10 of them in whatever. What's it been out a week and a half? Yeah, but aside from this, I haven't found anything. I I I happen to go into Walmart, which I really don't like to do. But I figured there'd be like a magazine or a book or something. Nothing. Toy aisle, nothing. 
I couldn't find any. It was all choked with Superman and Iron Man toys and, you know, just a bunch of crap left over from Christmas. And I, definitely, like, I definitely need a Gypsy Danger toy, though. That was just an awesome, awesome robot. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to have to see this. Like I said, you guys got me stoked for it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Hey, you want to get on to our books? Absolutely. And Bill's dog wants to. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, him and the cat are having a him and the cat are having issues, I think. <laughs> well, whenever you want to go into full t- full blown Doug mode, you let us know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in the meanwhile, because of our four man booth, we have two Marvels today. Uh, you guys want to battle it out to see who goes first? Ah, uh, guest can go first, or if he wants me to go first i don't care go ahead okay hi heroes fasten your seatbelts because mighty marvel is about to take you to a new dimension Alrighty. i got that neat little thing here on my comic rack that i found a few weeks ago everybody was here for that anyway before i get distracted by that all right my Marvel book for tonight is The Thing, number 11. This is uh, volume one, number 11, from 1984. Uh, this information comes from Mike's Amazing World. Thank you, Mike. Uh, cover date, May 1984. Sale date, January 24th, 1984. And uh, we have, um, excuse me, on the cover it says Rocky Grimm, Space Ranger. We have a human Ben Grimm riding on the riding bareback on the love child of Rodan and Mothra in an alien landscape with a ghostly rocky thing in the sky overlooking him. Uh, our cover credits are Ron Wilson, penciler, and inkers Joe Sinnott. And on our interiors, we are uh, our writer is uh, John Byrne. No art duties this time. And again, our pencilers are again Ron Wilson, and inker is Joe Sinnott. Colorist is George Russos. And our editor is... Bob Badansky? I think and, that's uh, correct. Yes. And uh, Jim Shooter is listed as ground control. So, which we'll figure out why as we go through the book. There's a lot of flying. So, we find a human Ben Grimm perched atop a rocky spire asking that age old question now what do I do? Uh, through inner and outer monologues, because he's probably going crazy for being by himself, uh, we are privy to what happened to him over the past uh, few weeks. Uh, he took part in the Secret Wars and found out that he was able to change form from from uh, his human form to the Thing form at will. And he decided to stay on the Beyonders uh, created world to sort things out on his own. Pondering his predicament, he looks at and casually tosses in the air a handy-dandy little transporter mechanism that Reed had whipped up for him so that he could return to Earth whenever he wanted to. Of course... He tosses it up only to have it grabbed in mid-toss by a passing flying alien, and it's diminutive rider. Astounded and outraged, Ben sets off before he loses sight of of, of, the, of the thieves. Uh, the rider always stays within Ben's sight as if taunting him and to follow along uh, with uh, uh, to get him to follow along with some possible obscene hand gestures. Uh, of course, we don't know what alien uh, hand gestures are, so we'll just guess. Um, after a trip through an M.C. Escher landscape, um, Ben spots the thief heading towards a distant, shiny spire. A lot of spires in this book. 
Finally reaching his target, he finds nothing but a small alien town on the opposite side. Searching the town, he goes to what he believes to be a tavern and speaks to Space Yosemite Sam. All right, all right, don't rush me. I'm a thinker. And my head hurts. Ben discusses with Sam the thief that took his, uh, his transporter. Sam explains that the town grew up around the spire after people tracked the takers here and were unable to get in to the spire. Determined to get in, Ben thinks that the thing could easily get in, but insists that he, Ben Grimm, can do it and that he doesn't need the thing to solve all his problems. <laughs> and that's it was Comet's two cents. <laughs> so professional, so professional. Along the way, he is followed by a female alien. Uh, she introduces herself as She, too, is a victim of the Takers and asks for Ben's help. And he says, great, just don't ever ask me to say your name. She tells him 16 years ago a wedding gift was stolen and she has been here ever since. Ben is confused by this since the battle world has only been in existence for a few weeks so it must be a wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey thing. Uh, she offers him a flying creature, uh, just like the one that the Takers had, one that she had found in the desert. After learning uh, to ride the beast, it heads up to the top of um, the spire at full speed. Ben hopes, it, hopes that it will open or, so- or something when suddenly they pass through and are now, on the other part, uh, are now in another part of the planet, at a strange structure, and a dog getting ready to bark again. Shut up. Shut up? Oh, I soit me. You don't think I'm the kind that would keep blabbing. Some people never know when to stop. When I'm told to shut up, I shut up. Shut up, shut up. Okay. A trio of takers swoop down and knock Ben from his mouth. They head off to the structure. Without thinking, Ben changes into the thing and heads for the main doors. Okay, you crumb bums, it's clobbering time. He rips through the doors like paper. Inside, he confronts the, and I quote, miserable munchkins, must not like small people, and demands his property back. They declare him the king of thieves for being the first outsider to find their home. Handing him his, his property, Ben realizes he had changed into the thing without a second thought. Relaxing, he transforms back into his human form, he demands they find the girl's um, stolen wedding gift from 16 years ago. The little guys are a bit nervous <laughs> since they have no idea where it could be. Cue the Trouble with Tribbles music as the little guys start sorting and Ben threatens them and walks away, vowing to be more careful with his transformations in the future. The end. With commentary by Comet. <laughs> <laughs> You can always tell Joe Sinnott, by the way. It doesn't matter whose art he's doing or inking. I mean, whether it's George Perez or whether he's inking, you know, uh, I mean, you can always tell Joe Sinnott ink work, first of all. Especially on the thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, especially so. And second of all, check out these kooky alien landscapes, purple tendrils and, you know, shiny (laughs) spires. And, I mean, it looks like that one page, I mean, the the whole uh, single-page spread with those, like, purple... Like I said, purple tendrils or whatever. It looks like it's something out of Ditko from you know Strange Tales. Just the right out of my notes. Are crazy. Oh, sorry. That's all right. I, I didn't mean to look over your shoulder at your notes. But yeah, I, I, the um, the alien landscapes in this are just out of hand. It's crazy. 
Okay. What's with the mustache, the big blue mustache on the alien? I like that. <laughs> I'm going to grow mine just like that. <laughs> space, space, you're Simmity Sam. But I, I, I noted how I'm seeing similarities in so much artwork here. Which basically, it's all my notes are referring to that same thing. And, and, and it's exactly the point that Jim started to make about how you can always tell Sinnott. The artwork overall, to me, reminds me of Sinnott inking Rich Buckler on the Fantastic Four, uh, for the most part. But then in there, you see that, that Steve Ditko dreamscape on that one page. The, uh, the alien girl looks very reminiscent of the aliens that Kirby drew in Thor back in like the 150s, 160s issues of Thor. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you, you top the uh, the picture when he's transforming back from the thing into uh, Ben Grimm, the middle shot. To me there, he looks just like early early Kirby on the on the FF. Oh, yeah, yeah, where he was more uh, like, soft, rocky, like yeah. muddy. Yeah, even the way he drew his hair as it's kind of receding while he's, uh, or actually in this case, it's not receding, it's coming back. Uh, mm-hmm. But kind of the Mo Howard uh, that he's got going there, like that—that that looks similar to the way Kirby would have drawn one of the transformations. And I'm not sure how much of the credit for for these—I'll—I'll I'll, I'll call them homages. I'm not sure if they are or not. But I don't know if it's—it's it's like Ron Wilson trying to do that, or if it's Joe Sinnott kind of taking the ball and run with it, running with it from his uh, layouts. Well, even a little pocket transporter looks Kirby-ish. Yes, yeah, it does. Another good point. Uh, whereas the alien uh, uh, mount reminds me of the uh, the things that they wrote in uh, Avatar, which came out, whatever, 30 years after this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm sure it's not an homage to that. It kind of reminded mind. me of one of those creatures that you would see like right from the tail end of the original series of Micronauts, those those weird animal-looking Micronaut toys that came out. That's For some reason, it really reminded me of that. I'm not sure why. It almost looks this, like something from a toy line to me. Well, this is almost the same time frame, isn't it? Um, uh, right around then, yeah, I think. Maybe a couple years after, but not, not by actually, much. Actually, if you go on the Bullpen Bulletins page, Micronauts 58 was out this month. Oh, okay. Yeah. So... Yeah, so it's a little later than those early issues. I really like the detail work on, on the uh, shot of the creature. There's kind of that almost full-page spread with just a little shot in the corner. Uh, it's page 5, I think it is. I really like the, the oh, detail yeah. work on, on the wings and, and just the overall body and, and the backgrounds, everything. It just really played, I thought it really played well. Yeah, it's I definitely a little see what you mean about the... Go ahead, sorry. I'm sorry. No, I was just saying, yeah, it's the love child. We cut each other off again. No, it's the love child of Mothra and uh, Rodan. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say, I could definitely see the buck- the you comparing it to Rich Buckler and uh, and Senate on Fantastic Four. I definitely see the resemblance there. There's all kinds of influences in this issue. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and 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 it's you know it it stands alone very well. I think the artwork, but you know if you have knowledge of these other, uh, I consider them to be masters. If you have knowledge of these other masters, uh, you know it just makes it gives you another level to enjoy the book on. All right, anybody got anything else on this one? Uh, no, I was just looking in the actually uh, in the Mighty Marvel checklist for this month. Was uh, this this came out the same month as uh, oh, that, that's right? I, I I remember this. I bought this and Secret Wars. It, they both came out the same month, and it was so confusing. You're like, what? What? What's what? What's going on? What's he doing there? 
all those books that came out this month when the X-Men came back from uh, from this and ended up in Japan and they uh, they had the giant uh, dragon and um, what did the Avengers pop back into? Well, the Fantastic Four came back and obviously the thing was gone and She-Hulk was in his place. So, yeah, it was it was a strange time back then when for like a year you didn't know what happened. It's funny, you mentioned, it's funny you mentioned that page because that was actually my favorite page of the book. Um, not to be a downer because I loved this period of Marvel Comics. I mean, this this brings me right back to my childhood, but I really didn't like this title. It, it's not even just this issue. I didn't like this title. Um, I like the fact that he was tied up on the Beyonders world and that you know gave way for She-Hulk to come to the FF. Because I love Burns FF, and I really like that particular era of Burns FF when She-Hulk replaced the thing. I, I thought it just added a, a nice new dynamic to that team. That's that's still some of my favorite comics, you know. Speaking sentimentally, but I was a big fan of Marvel uh, Two and One as a kid, and when that ended and was replaced by this, I, I've just always thought that this was a very poor replacement for that title because I like the thing. I just don't think he's a character that that can really sustain his own book, or at least for me. I, I just didn't ever find it interesting. And it's weird because this particular issue is everything I didn't like about the Thing solo title, yet so many creators work on this this one issue that I, I <laughs> really, really like. You, know, you got Byrne, you got Ron Wilson, you got Joe Sinnott. I love these guys. And I even like the Thing. And I love this era of Marvel Comics, yet you put all of this together and it's just, for me, you know, speaking to my personal taste, I just think it's a craptastic issue. I just I just don't enjoy this type of thing. Of course, I'm not, you know, I make no bones about being, you know, never being a fan of the Marvel Cosmic stuff, at least not up until recently. But, yeah, it's just, it's, it's too weird, silly sci-fi for me. I'm not sure what they were going for but yeah i want to see you know the thing doing the clobbering time punching dr doom or the mole man this off on a weird alien planet with jawas riding dragons i'm like yeah no no thank you well, well it's funny you should say that because the issue after that um is where he runs they find uh doomstat is on at least what they believe that we doomstat dooms castle and like a uh, probably doom bots from what i remember is the next issue here hmm. i i mean i got to agree with you to a large extent that i wasn't crazy about this series on a whole uh and a lot more of that comes from the fact that i really liked marvel two and one and this replaced exactly. marvel two and one mm -hmm. uh and i don't think john byrne did anything in this particular issue to distinguish himself as a writer uh, it's just kind of an okay story, but if you know, I think I think that's kind of demonstrated by the fact that uh, all four of us, when we've discussed it after the synopsis, have been focusing on the art, and there hasn't been one comment of "Yeah, that was a good moment when he said this or when he did that." And what was up with that chick's name? <laughs> I thought you did a good See, job of pronouncing it, though. See what's I funny is tried. that. If this had been a team-up tale, I think I'd be much more forgiving of it because I can remember there being a lot of team-up tales that I look back on it now and go, 
you know, why do I love this so much? This really isn't a very good story. But it was just that for some reason, even though that book ran 100 issues, it still always felt like a novelty every issue when he would meet up with a different character, even if it was somebody he'd met up with a thousand times before, like the Human Torch or Spider-Man or, you know, somebody like that. I still got a kid. It was something about that team-up format. I, I don't know what it is. It's something they've never really been able to, to capture again, but I really like that. So I, I wish that they had just continued this and still had it a team-up. If he was in here with spider-man or iron man or hell even the torch i think i'd be a lot more forgiving but it's just something about this this combination and it's just the thing which again again i don't mean to to slant the guy or slight the guy i like the thing but he's just not interesting enough to me to to want to follow him in a solo book you know what i mean Mm -hmm. just me yeah well they tried a solo book what, just a few years ago, and that didn't last very long either. Yeah, and it had the same problem. It was interesting, but it wasn't interesting enough to make me keep shelling out money. And I, I ended up picking that up on the cheap. I think I got that for like a diamond issue or something like that. And it's a hell of a good read. I mean, it's a lot of fun. But full price. as it was, yeah, exactly. As it was coming out, what was it like three, four bucks? And it's like, eh, uh, you know? I think that was before the big price hike because that it was like soon, soon after that. It, I know it was before Secret Invasion because Se- Secret Invasion right. would broke me. <laughs> <laughs> Secret Hell Invasion you. broke a lot of people. <laughs> what? It broke my will to live. <laughs> Thor flies in and solves everything in 10 seconds? What the hell? <laughs> That's all I, I mean- got. No, I was a big fan of Marvel 2 and 1 as well, especially like the Project Pegasus. Oh, I love storyline. That, oh, uh, that yeah. was a big one with me. Um, you know, one dar and all that good stuff. But. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, there was a lot of good. That, well, that must have run about thirteen issues or so. That whole storyline, mm-hmm. and that was really cool. I agree. That was probably the highlight of the, of that series, which was just a fun series from beginning to end. I thought. Has anybody ever done a, a, a start to finish cast on that on that title? I wonder on two and one. No, I don't think so. I'd love to listen to something like that because I, I did. I love that book, and I, I think I do have a complete. I know team up with Spider Man. I don't, but with that one, I know I have a complete run, and uh, I, I just I I really dug that book. That was a good book. Team up. I have a complete run of, or at least I did have a complete run of it. I think issues from one hundred to one fifty are now spotty for some reason, even though I had a full run, and I'm pretty sure I have just about a full run of two and one. See, I go the other way. It's like, I, I, I know I only lack like three, maybe four issues of that, but they're all early. It's like I need a number one, a number two, and then like, like an oddball when like a number, I don't know, nine or some damn thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's the very earliest ones I've had. Because for some reason, that very first issue of Team Up is uh, is pricey. But none of, the re- none of the rest of them, as I recall, have much value to them at all. No, I don't think... Uh... You know, yeah, but the first ten issues have probably got some value, but after that, I think uh, you probably could find them fairly cheap, right? Which is odd because two and one's the exact opposite. I don't know that any of issues of two and one proper have much monetary value, but two and one got kind of a tryout in uh, what was it, Marvel feature? Yes, number and issues those two or three, ten and eleven, I think. 
Yeah, something like that. Yeah, those are kind of, or at least at the time I, I was seeking them out, they were actually kind of pricey. I don't know what they are today. But. Well, those start the Jim Starlin Cosmic Run, actually. Ah, yeah, okay, you're right. Yeah, that could so be that's, why they're that's so really bright. the reason yeah. for their, their costliness, because yeah. they were not, I, I don't believe they were... Uh, heavily heavily printed issues either because you know yeah. for those series i think that you know they had a smaller print run than for the you know the, the prime titles and that started right. a big run you know that that's revered today and it's the same thing with that last issue of logan's run what is it like number seven i want to say for some odd reason the story in that is short so they dumped a thanos backup story into it and now everybody wants that thanos story and that's what drives the price of that book up it's yeah. crazy i've got i've got that one too uh well yeah there was that big story too it was a marvel two-in-one annual either number one or two that crossed over yeah. with avengers annual 10 all about the yeah. soul gem and adam warlock it was like the really big uh that was a big starling thing too if i'm not mistaken yeah that, that concluded so, yeah. the whole thanos storyline and you know uh as as have many stories ended with him getting killed at the end mm-hmm. it's good stuff it's good stuff we could do like some sort of two-in-one spotlight episode sometime or something like that be an idea Definitely. who's next I remember, I remember the 50th issue was uh john byrne doing the art and it was the thing versus the thing yeah like he sent the thing back in time to back when the thing was lumpy mm-hmm um, and uh, you know, had to like deliver some sort of uh, you know serum to him to cure himself. And uh, you know, of course, the lumpy thing didn't recommend you know recognize the rocky thing at all. So they had to fight, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do remember that story. Reed Richards came up with a cure for him, but then said, uh, "Unfortunately, this won't work on you in your current condition." Had I thought of this. You know, when you were in that softer uh, condition, it would have worked. So he used Doom's time machine to go back and then eventually defeated his younger self, poured the serum down his throat, turned him into Ben Grimm, thereby creating an alternate reality and not curing himself at all. Right. Didn't he create like Earth A or something like that? Cursed Richards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was that was uh, that was like an interesting thing because issue 50 was the thing in the thing. And then issue 100, which was the final issue, was The Thing and Ben Grimm, which I think was revisiting that world mm. again. Hmm. Earth A. <laughs> well, this this one, I guess, because of this girl. With The be... Thing and the Fonz? <laughs> <laughs> the Thing was the Fonz. He became <laughs> the Fonz. Uh, does, doesn't it kill you to know that the Fonz wasn't cool in real life? <laughs> <laughs> He was like the most uncool guy on the show. You know what's happening? No, what? I'm losing it. Losing what, Fonz? Losing what? I'm losing my cool. Oh, no. You're probably just having a slump. Hey. Everybody goes through slumps. I mean, even Mantle and Maze, those guys go hey, five hey, or six hey, games. Hey, 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 I'm not talking about grown men chasing little bulls around a field. <laughs> I'm talking about the Fonz losing his cool. <laughs> But that's what this show's all about. <laughs> Digression. Sh- it, it certainly is. Speaking of spotlights, hopefully soon we'll do an Avengers spotlight. First first a- a- episode. We're, what, open for what, August, guys? And Scott. <coughs> <laughs> what? Stay on target. Stay on target. 
All right. That said, let's move on to our next book. Jim, you've got our other Marvel today, do you not? I do. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Marvel What If, Volume 2. This is the second time they did it. Uh, number 15. That's from 1990 um, by Marvel Comics, of course, New York, New York. And uh, the, the What If question is, what if the Fantastic Four had lost the trial of Galactus? Hi, true believers. You may think you know the Fantastic Four, but until you see the far-out version we have waiting for you, you've only scratched the surface. And no dyed-in-the-wool Marvelite wants to be a surface scratcher, right? Now, there was a big storyline in the burn. I just got the burn omnibus um, uh, for Fantastic Four when I was at Heroes Con. I've been reading through a lot of the old burn stuff. And there was a, a run in the burn FF uh, where Reed Richards basically defends Galactus as a force of nature. Basically, you know, his argument is you couldn't, you know, as much kill him as you could kill a hurricane or something. Um, so the, uh, in, you know, in our regular Marvel continuity, he is able to prove Galactus, you know, is, is, is a force of nature and, and walks away scot clean and is not executed for allowing Galactus to live. Basically, you know, because you know he, uh, you know, uh, you know, Reed Richards allowed Galactus to live. They're, they're, you know, sentencing him for Galactus's crimes. But he, you know, he eloquently defends his way out of it in the original Burn Run. In this, he doesn't do so well. Uh, we're talking uh, writing by Roy Thomas and uh, co-plotting by R.J.M. Lafossier, which I'm pretty sure is a pseudonym for John Byrne because a lot of these breakdowns look very influenced by Byrne. But the art isn't by Byrne at all. It's by a young Greg Capullo. 1990, um, you know, current artist on Batman. So, uh, you know, he's going back quite a bit in his career, but the, the pencils are still pretty strong, I think. Again, very influenced by the burn run on Fantastic Four. Uh, we, uh, the inker is uh, Sam De La Rosa, uh, letterer Gary Fields, colorist Tom Vincent. The editor on this is Craig Anderson, the editor-in-chief at Marvel at that point in time was Tom DeFalco. So, basically, uh, in this alternate universe, uh, Reed Richards is put on trial for Galactus. Galactus does not intercede in the trial, and Reed is toast. They kill him. Uh, they execute him in front of... The Shi'ar execute him in front of the entire galactic community. Um, and boy, are the, fan, the rest of the Fantastic Four cheesed. Um, they, uh, you know, they vow revenge, they get sent back to Earth, and then they're like, well, screw it, Reed's dead. Let's, uh, you know, let's pull out all the stops. And they break into their armory. And inside the armory, we find the original scroll battleship from FF10. Uh, you also, in the background here, see all kinds of you know, manner of um, alien weaponry, including uh, Annihilus' co uh, cosmic control rod uh, there on a shelf. Basically, they're loading up the scroll ship uh, that they captured so long ago with as much weaponry as they can, and they're going to take it out on the scrolls uh, for what they did. Or, I'm sorry, they take it out on the Shi'ar for what they've done to Reed. So they hop into the UFO, they fly away. Um, you know, the, um, we we then go cut to Lilandra talking to Gladiator, saying, you know, well maybe we, you know, we acted too harshly. Maybe you know, what are the repercussions of this going to be? And uh, she calls, um, you know, she's she calls the Imperial Guard to to her side. As they look up, they see a squirrel saucer invading their space, but it's being piloted by the Fantastic Four, or what's left of the Fantastic Four. And as uh, Ben Grimm says, we'll pearl their harbor, you know. <laughs> um, 
it's interesting. Uh, you know, they don't like the sneak attack, but after what they did to Reed, they want to get revenge. So Johnny goes out to run interference uh, for the uh, the flying saucer as they go into Shi'ar airspace, and they fire uh, the weapon of the scroll saucer. But what they don't realize is how powerful it is, and it totally has destroyed the Shi'ar homeworld. Uh, just exploded, you know, Alderaan style from from <laughs> Star Wars. Nothing Whoops. left, but you know, yeah. Oops, sorry. Yeah, they they didn't mean to. <laughs> they uh, they come back to Earth. Uh, you know, Sue is pretty un- unhappy about the fact that they're guilty of genocide, and they they don't know what else to do. Uh, the rest of the Marvel Cosmic community gets together. We see the the recorder from the Regellians and uh, the. Uh, Little Jack Kirby, uh, Regellian standing around the Cree, the Skrulls, um, you know the the Tribitites, uh, you know. But uh, we hear, you know, we get references to the Akan and the Badoon and a lot of the different uh, the Zandarians, a lot of the uh, like pretty much all the cosmic races of the Marvel universe have gathered. Um, Gladiator is the only remaining member of the Shi'ar who's still alive. And uh, the vote is unanimous that the Earth must die for what they've done to the Shi'ar. Uh, meanwhile, it turns out that the Skrulls are behind uh, all of this. They're trying to turn everyone against Earth, of course, because of what they've done. And uh, the Kree officer that was attending the previous meeting is actually a Skrull spy. And they have a very, very powerful weapon, uh, the ultimate weapon, uh, the Omniwave Projector which I think I used to have by Remco, right? It had little discs that went inside. No, that's something different. Anyway, uh, Sue Richards goes on the air to tell them what they've done and to kind of, you know, um, you know, be, be on the lookout because we're about to get invaded by uh, a bunch bunch of uh, bad ETs. And, you know, we, we get, like, little cutaways of how everyone uh, on Earth is reacting. You know, we get the Punisher and Silver Surfer and Thor, Spider-Man. Um Colonel uh, Nick Fury, White Nick Fury, uh, collects the uh, the Avengers to uh, stand ready uh, against the uh, you know the oncoming alien invasion. Um, Sue and Johnny and uh, and Ben hop back into the flying saucer to meet the um, to meet the Armada, but then they find out that on the screen on the the uh, the scrolls have a ship with the omniwave projector upon it and they realize that they need to stop that because that's going to destroy even more than earth the omniwave projector will wipe out not only earth but the entire galactic armada leaving the scrolls in charge so they bust in to try to stop the omniwave projector meanwhile every ship in that they could possibly that Greg Capullo could possibly draw in this panel is <laughs> is around earth and we see one, the one ship looks very much like the front end of the Battlestar Galactica. We see like a little um, Death Star nod there in the background. Uh, a lot of uh, different influences there. Uh, the Skrulls prepare to detonate the Omniwave projector. Um, the Fantastic Four go down fighting it to destroy it, and they uh, they're able to destroy the weapon before it destroys every you know destroys the entire universe. They're able to save the Galactic Armada and Earth, but at the cost of their own lives. Um, Gladiator uh, goes into uh, telepathic mode with everyone on Earth at once uh, with a telepathic message of the inhabited worlds of a thousand, thousand galaxies. Um, But everyone, of course, hears it in their own language as we find out from some nice exposition. Um, Fantastic Four, you know, uh, sacrifice themselves 
uh, to save all of us. So we're going to call it Squaresies, and uh, that's pretty much it. So they blew up the Easy Bake Oven. At least. <laughs> so what happens when you put a penny in a microwave? <laughs> put a penny in the Omniwave projector, Bill. You don't want to do that. I like the art in this one. I, I always used to find as a kid that uh, sometimes the stories would be really good, but uh, sometimes, a lot of times, it seemed like the, what if the, the art was questionable. But I, I really enjoy the art in this one. What I like most about this, and this surprises me a lot that I feel this way, is the artist is not trying to ape John Byrne which you would kind of think that they'd want to do that because this was such a, an iconic run and everything for Fantastic Four, and this is right in the heart of the of the burn run. But he doesn't. I mean, there's a lot of nods to it, but he's, you know, they could have got somebody like, say, Paul Ryan or someone who has a very John Byrne style, but instead they, they let this artist run with his own style, and I think it really shines. I, I like it a lot. I think in it... At- by this point, I think on what if they, for the most part, were like trying out some of the new young artists that they were finding, and that's probably how Capullo ended up on this. And you know, obviously, considering where his career is gone, uh, <laughs> they found a winner on this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we're always a mixed bag. Um, of the anthology type, where he never knew what artist it was going to be from all, from one to one. I remember, I remember Claus Jansen doing, you know, what. Um, was a what if Daredevil had become an agent of Shield? You know, oh, right. yeah, I remember that breakdowns. Or um, you know, I mean, some of them are really great, and then some of them, of course, not so much. I've always been a big fan of alternate reality stories, though. I mean, going back to DC Earth Two and um, you know All Star Squadron, and um, I mean, it, it, even up to like you know, Age of Apocalypse, Days of Future Past, and X Men. Um, so I, I have always been a big fan of What If mm-hmm. through the. Yeah, me too. Yes. I, I'm, I'm the same way with that. I, I, I like yeah. to see, especially if it's a, an, a reality that I know well, and then you present the alternate to it, it, it really is enjoyable to see what they do when they play with it. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of panels in here that I'm not crazy about, and I'm I'm putting it more on the anchor than on uh, Capullo. Uh, on, where was it? On page 28, the second to last page, down at the bottom right-hand corner panel, uh, what the heck is going on with Nick Fury's face there? I had similar problems with the page with uh, Sue Storm talking to Franklin. It's almost like a lack of detail in that one. Is that? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a cigar like, sticking out of his mouth. Although it looks like he's like slack jawed. What is that? <laughs> yeah, no, mm-hmm. I see the cigar, but like just the shape of his head and everything, and the way it's well, that, attached to his neck just looks weird. Well, everybody's looking up. I also didn't care for the shot of Wolverine when they're showing the different heroes. I thought it was D-Man for a second. (laughs) That's exactly what I thought. It almost looks like D-Man in that shot. (laughs) And then there's a couple couple of shots in particular where it didn't seem... It seemed like the anchor uh, didn't add a little detail where he could have. Johnny Storm on a couple of shots just looks like he's two-thirds of the way done. I don't know. That's but but overall, I like the artwork a lot. It's just a couple of panels in it that I, that just jumped out at me that I didn't like. And I see an influence of Burn in there, but like you said, he's not aping Burn. Right. Yeah, definitely. 
So uh, you think that this uh, co-plotter is a non de plume? I'd, I'd like to look that up. I, I looked it up on Wikipedia, and it sounds like it's actually a real person. But it, it's tough to tell. Because I know that uh, Byrne uh, did have a couple of different pseudonyms that he wrote under. And I wonder if this is an instance of maybe somebody just not getting the joke. And well, so yeah, they well, actually created a whole Wiki, you know, Wikipedia say, article for this person or something. It is Wikipedia, so be careful. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's pretty much all I got on this. I I'm, I got a kick out of it because, of course, I like uh, I like Gladiator a lot. So it's nice to see Gladiator step up in this story toward the end and be the one that was kind of leading the whole mission to come teach the FF and Earth a, a thing or two. So, Paul, are you going to read that last speech as Arnold Schwarzenegger as Gladiator? <laughs> no, I am not. Uh, <laughs> okay. Since okay. when did Gladiator have telepathic powers, though? I don't remember that. Did he have telepathic powers? Well, right. if you consider the the, uh, the you know the Shi'ar Imperial Guard all have analogs in the Legion of Superheroes, then they probably have a Saturn Girl analog who could probably. Uh, do that. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Yeah, so he's not necessarily using his own power, but being he's broadcast. not using his gladiator telepathy, his super right. telepathy, super telepathy. Yeah. Well, this panel here is completely ridiculous. The one where. He's being broadcast to everyone on Earth, and Scarlet Witch says, Vision, I'm hearing him in my native transient language, and the Vision says, <laughs> and, Just, I, and I, in, a, in the language of computer. What? Since when beep, the hell does a computer beep, have beep, beep, telepathy? Beep, beep, yeah, exactly. He's, 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 hearing him, he's hearing him in basic. It buys binary. It's in Fortran. Yeah, really. <laughs> Well, oh, you know, no, he... I'm caught in a DOS loop. Ah! <laughs> I love Thor's expression on the uh, second to last panel. He just you, Nick Fury's talking Ooh. to him, and he's just spacing out, going, "Duh, huh?" <laughs> <laughs> I do like it though. I th- I thought this was good. I enjoyed it. I'm a sucker for a good what if story. Yeah. Oh. That's like Jim. Jim was saying, and I totally agree that, that just taking an alternate reality and you just got to take it somewhere interesting. That's the whole thing. Uh, you know, sometimes they just did some, and it's like, well, why would you even pick this moment to do a what if on? Because I didn't care about it the first time it happened. Right. Well, the thing I like about what if was that you generally knew straight up what you were getting. I mean, as fantastic as some of the. Uh, the Elseworlds, you know, DC's version of it. Because I often hear people say that, well, you know, Elseworlds, DC's version of what if. Well, it kind of is and it kind of isn't. With a lot of the Elseworlds, sometimes you have to be well into the read before you you get that twist element of exactly what it is that's been turned on its ear. What I liked about what if, they laid it out for you right on the cover. What if Uncle Ben had died? You know, what if... You know, Aunt May had been the one that had been shot. You know, what if Daredevil was deaf instead of blind or whatever the case was? They laid it out for you so you knew what you were getting into, sort of. So you could kind of take your mind back to whatever the original setup was. And now you knew you were going to get, you know, the alternate take. And I liked that. There's something about that format that I really, really liked. And I think What If Volume 2 is one of those rare instances where they brought back one of these classic concepts that we enjoyed so much when we were kids. And it pretty much worked, or at least in the beginning portion it did. I know some of the later issues, they started to get do some wackier tales and more obscure storylines. I was just like, 
I don't even know what the hell story they're referencing, let alone you know getting into this new take on it. So, well, what they did that I found was initially they they'd pick like key real pivotal moments in Marvel history. You know, what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four? What mm-hmm. if the Hulk had the brain of Bruce Banner? Uh, you know, th- I think those were the first two issues, in fact. Uh, you know, I-, I think number three was what if uh, the Hulk and Submariner had killed uh, the Avengers in the early issues when they fought them? Uh, like, they picked real key moments in the history of the Marvel Universe. And right. then... For whatever reason, they seemed to decide that if it was an old storyline, it wasn't worth hitting on. And to the point now where when they do what-if stories, it's always on something that came out, you know, a year ago. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they're coming out right. now, and I'm, I'm sure it's well-written because I love Jimmy, Jimmy Palmiotti's stuff. Uh, but Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray just have the book that came out, I think, last week, uh, which is uh, AVX What-If. And I haven't read that yet. And I'm sure it's well done. But, you know, it's like, you know, there's no reason you can't pick other more key moments instead of doing it so soon afterwards. Right. To me, one of the yeah. joys of a what-if story is seeing the ripples through the years of how that, you know, the butterfly effect of how that change has affected everything. But when you talk about a story that came out a year ago, you don't have too much butterfly effect to throw out there, you know? Right. Plus, the fewer readers that are familiar with what it's referencing, the fewer readers are going to pick up that book. You know what I mean? If I don't know the AVX storyline, why would I get a what if of it? You know. Mm-hmm. True. Good point. Well, I get, but I think I think that's exactly their logic. Is that if they decided to go back, you know, 15 years ago to something that happened, uh, you know, that turns out to be a pivotal moment, but that current readers may not be totally on uh, on top of right now you're less likely to get readership than you are to do AVX, which is still, you know, fresh in people's memories. The problem I have with it is that it is fresh in my memory. I don't need What If yet. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what's nice with this issue of What If? We only have three shots of that creepy peeping Tom, the Watcher. <laughs> and that's in the first, like, three pages. He, he, he's in one shot on the little dais there in the middle. Then he split between the uh, between page two and three, and then we got him standing next to Eternity, and that's it. He's nowhere else in the book that I spotted him, peeking out from behind corners, looking on screens, watching Gwen Stacy take a shower. You know, cue the "Whoa, dude, that's creepy" sound effect. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, dude, that's creepy. I don't even know what that what show that was from, but I just liked the uh, the clip, so I used it what I think six times in the last episode. <laughs> Got it. If somebody in the in the Marvel universe would just take a little bit of pity with the Watcher and you know take him to Macy's or something, get him some decent, you know, get him some jeans, get him a hat, you know, take him to a party or something, then he wouldn't just have to watch all the time. He could participate too. He could be a, he could he could be a functioning member of society instead of this <laughs> creepy Watcher guy. He should definitely like uh, maybe wear a scarf or an ascot around his neck to kind of deflect you know, all the attention from his giant head that defies gravity. You know. So I was thinking a bowler a, a bowler hat would do. A bowler. That's like, hat. The, big, that's like the big design flaw. You know, that's the design flaw that he has to work with as far as like trying to yeah, a big bowler hat, a monocle. <laughs> Imagine the neck muscles this guy's got to have with a yeah, no with doubt a melon like that. Like, you should have some sort of supports or something, yeah. Oh, well, that's what the... You have to watch it with a big that, halo brace on. <laughs> that, that's what that 
funky headrest and uh, gold medallion are for. He's he's, he's wearing a Hans device. <laughs> Head and neck restraint. That's why he's always hanging out on the blue side of the moon is because uh, the, the gravity is less there. <laughs> it's less, less strain on his neck. So. Oh, God. Oh, I need some I need some leave. Uh, this watching is killing me. I need some glasses, too. He's a weird dude, that Uatu. Uatu. Something I, actually, one of the books I'd like to uh, revisit, which I haven't read in years since they were new coming out was uh, in Captain Marvel when they did the trial of the Watcher when they finally called him on all his uh, interference I don't know if any if oh, yeah. you guys have ever read yeah. that but uh, why didn't they just try him time. for being a perv <laughs> no that's okay in, in the Watcher world yeah it was all his other Watcher buddies were saying hey you're, you're doing more than watching you're helping yeah. you gotta stop it's not creepy at all that some bald guy with a, a baby's head is staring at me every moment of every second of every day or everything I do. No, not creepy at all. Totally I would normal. like to think that there's at least a couple of things I've done in my lifetime where Uwachu's just had to go, oh, dude, Jesus, I don't, oh, no, I can't on. watch that. Yeah, not anymore. I'm done watching. <laughs> all right. I think it's time to move on to our DC book. Unless anybody's got anything else to add before we slip away from Uatu. Away from the Uatu. Okay. Uh, I got the DC this time around as we wait anxiously for Scott to do Captain Canuck as the independent. Uh, And I picked Mr. Miracle number 19 from September of cover price of 35 cents and at the time that seemed expensive uh for what it's worth mr miracle was introduced as part of jack kirby's fourth world and the first issue came out in april of 1971 issue 18 was january of 1974 i believe through that entire run they were all written and drawn by kirby and then we had a uh three-and-a-half-year layoff that the series was not produced anymore, and this issue presented the long-awaited return of Mr. Miracle. Uh, The cover is by the late and great Marshall Rogers, which shows Mr. Miracle in the foreground looking up and back at an oversized Granny Goodness's face, Uh, and behind them there's Herminians who have Big Barter captured. The story is written by Steve Englehart, it's drawn by, once again, the late, great Marshall Rogers, and I, I assume inked by Ilya Bunch. Colors are by Liz Barubi, and the lettering is by Morris Waldinger. Story opens with a quick refresher course on who Mr. Miracle is. We're told that he's a god, a superhero, a man, and a super escape artist, uh, which is also worth mentioning that my understanding is that Kirby actually based the character of Mr. Miracle on Jim Steranko, who was, I don't know if he was an amateur magician or if he was a professional magician uh, in his day. Uh, 
He was, you know, he's an escape artist and magician. Um, in fact, he was uh, telling, he was talking to uh, Tom Scioli, who does American Barbarian and um, Godland when I was at Heroes Con last time. Mm -hmm. uh, Stranko was there. And he was telling the story about how uh, Kirby, you know, showed him Mr. Miracle the first time. He's like, wow, what a flashy dresser. I don't think I could pull that off. That was his response. <laughs> Kirby showed him Mr. Miracle for the first time. But yeah, he based him on Stranko because Stranko is an escape artist and stage magician before he even got into um, illustration. Yeah, I was, I was saying something recently. You know, I met Stranko the last couple of uh, New York Comic Cons, and he's an incredibly engaging guy. Uh, he's he's probably about 72, 73 years old. He's uh, you know he's a, a smallish man. He's got a bad hairpiece, and yet he carries off cool better than anybody I know. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you heard the apocryphal story about him and Bob Kane, but uh, if you haven't, Google it because it's a great story, and I would ruin it by telling it in my own crappy way. Yeah, I, I did hear that last week, and I'm I'm also hearing that it is apocryphal and that it may not be totally accurate. It's, it's one of those stories that's too beautiful not to be true, as they say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the with, with this story, we join Mr. Miracle, otherwise known as Scott Free, who is walking with Big Barda. Apparently they're on their honeymoon on New Genesis. Scott feels the need to exposit to Barda and tell the story of his history which is quickly followed <laughs> by High Father joining them to exposit further and tell him his own history again. Uh, he tells Scott that he should relax and let Orion do the fighting. And as soon as he starts making out with Barda, a boom tube opens up right in front of them, and from that boom, boom tube, not boob tube, Granny Goodness comes out with Dr. Bedlam, Kanto, and everybody's favorite, Vermin Wunderbar. Scott and Barda put up a good fight, but they're both subdued. And just as our villains open another boom boom tube, Scott lives up to his reputation as an escape artist and escapes from their grasp, but they get away with Barda. Scott goes to the Old Father for help, but he's told that no one's available because there's a war going on and he's on his own. And from there we join Oberon, who's apparently living a comfortable life on Earth. And Mr. Miracle comes calling him and tells him what happened. And he's, like, really pissed at, at uh, Granny Goodness and talks about how he hates her. They set off together on a rescue mission. And Oberon is actually riding piggyback on Mr. Miracle's back as they leave and gets uh, encased in something to protect them as they, as they fly away at high speeds. They go to Nevada where Mother Box has led them and they're con confronted by an etheric projection of our villains. Granny Goodness tells him that he must come in without his mother box in order to negotiate from Barda's release, and he agrees to do so, even though he knows that it's a trap. It's a trap! There's an uncomfortable internal monologue where he thinks about how he loves his mother box almost as much as he loves Barda, which is just out-and-out out weird. Uh, he goes in without it, but sneaks in an X-ray lens on his eye, a dynatherm bomb under a false patch on the skin of his hand, and an electric, electronic lockpick along his gum line. He enters, and they explain how Barda is being reinstilled with Granny's obedience lessons. And at this point, if your enemy is an escape artist, what do you do? Well, you come up with an, an intricate trap which he cannot escape. <laughs> yeah. So they place him in vibronic manacles, a cocoon of chains, and then they drop him upside down in a water tank a la Harry Houdini. So, yeah, let's see, you're an escape artist? I'm going to put you in an escape artist's trick. 
But then, what do they do next? Of course, as indicated on page 115 of the Supervillain Handbook, they walk away. And they don't want to witness his agonizing death. <laughs> really. Uh... All right, guard, begin the unnecessarily slow-moving dipping mechanism. Close the tank! Wait, aren't you even going to watch them? They could get away. No, no, no. I'm going to leave them alone and not actually witness them dying. I'm just going to assume it all went to plan. What? I have a gun in my room. You give me five seconds, I'll get it. I'll come back down here. Boom! I'll blow their brains out. Scott, you just don't get it, do you? You don't. So, as soon as they walk away, he slips out of his chains like they're nothing and uses his hidden tools to escape from the trap. He rushes to confront the villains, and just before he reaches them, they get away, and the issue ends with Mr. Miracle indicating that he knows where they're going because Wunderbar let slip that they were going to be looking down on Earth, and he knows that they're in the moon, on the moon, and he's going up to save her in the next issue. And he looks like he's all pissed off, and it does make me, as I've said on many the books that I've covered, it makes me want to read the next issue to see what happens, so I guess that makes it a successful story. I think the story here by Steve Englehart is good. I think the artwork by Marshall Rogers is awesome. I love this this art. It's to me, it's a combination of uh, George Perez, Keith Giffen. Uh, it's just like, but it's got its own independence to it. It's not aping either of them. It's just you know the style of that day and how how he does it. And there's a as Jim and I were talking about before we started recording, uh, there's a little Barry Windsor Smith mixed in there for good measure as well. Now that I'm looking at it, especially with like the big faces and like the the one scene here with High Father like framing the, the picture with his staff and whatnot, uh kind of Neil Adams. Yeah, a little I, bit I'm of that. Seeing, I'm seeing that, you know, just in more of the framing and, and especially I noticed on the cover and, and it almost remind there are parts of it that almost remind me of uh of Walt Simonson, uh back when he was doing Manhunter. Mm-hmm. With uh, Charlie Goodwin, so like that, this is definitely of its time. I mean, we get like a lot of, you know, thought balloons, a lot of exposition, like you said, you know, very much written in the '70s style. But the art is very much of that time too, which is great. I mean, this is the time of, like I said, Neil Adams, Barry Windsor Smith, Rich Buckler, uh, you know, Walt Simonson on Manhunter, and 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 you know, uh, and Engelhart and and Rogers, their run on um, Detective Comics, uh, on Batman, it's just legendary. It's in two trades called Batman Dark Detective. Uh, one and two, uh, and they're both worth checking out because that was a great run of Batman uh, that they did. And I, pro- I imagine they're probably better known for that than they are for Mister Miracle. Oh, absolutely, um, and and also the Doctor Strange run that they did. Right, but I mean, together they're just like they're just really really work well together as a writer artist team. And I mean, again, you know, Rogers at the top of his game here, just you know, great stuff. You know, I I think I've seen this arc before, but I didn't think I I guess I've never never really taken notice of Marshall Rogers. But I I do like this art, and for this time frame back in back in the seventies, this is, yeah yeah you're right. This has like a Neil Adams touch to it. I I like the opening first page with with the split you know with his mask. Uh, I mean, yeah, this this is really some good stuff. And and when I when I read uh, this, I can't help but hear uh, Artie Johnson as uh, Verna Wunderbar, and uh, <laughs> Ed Asner as Granny Goodness, which I just think was is brilliant voice casting. I don't remember who did Mister Miracle on the uh, on the the cartoon. 
I don't know, but the closing shot could be Jackie Gleason to the moon. <laughs> I'll follow to the moon, Alice to the moon. There's a, there's almost a little bit of that burn cleanness to the way he's drawn, uh, and and the scene when he throws the dino thermo bomb on that same last page, that almost looks like a Steranko panel to me. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I'll agree with that. So it's almost like he's combining the best of the greatest artists of his time without aping any of them. Have you ever read the next ep- uh, episode, the next issue in this? Because the way they, sh- all right, the way that's shaped out, it says Eclipse. Does that have something to do with Eclipso, with the way that's sh- shaped? I don't know. <laughs> I never read the next issue, but like I said, I, oh, def- okay. I definitely want to at this point. He's not hyped on the cover, I can mm. tell you that. I was just looking at the covers, trying to figure out what was my first issue of this, because I actually have, well, if it ends with 25, which I think it does, I have the whole run from 19 through the end of the series. Um, I can't remember if I've actually read all of these or not. I think I have, but it's been a very long time, so I'm not sure exactly uh, you know, what happens story-wise, but I can tell you the art was fantastic in these. See, on the that's... cover of this issue, if you told me this was a George Perez drawing, I would have believed it. I wouldn't have questioned that for a second. I don't know if you could, if you see that in it, but I like I said, yeah, even... yeah, it's it's got the yeah, he's got that same style. Yeah, like in um... the just. Oh, go ahead, Bill. No, no, no. I mean, I, I was just kind of getting my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, with the detail of the faces and and uh, just in like in the teeth in Granny Goodness's mouth and in the eye. Eyes, the bloodshot eyes, and everything. There's a lot of detail in there, and all the stuff. On, uh, Baron, was it Baron Wunderbar? Baron Ver- Verna Wunderbar. No, the way yeah, his face is drawn in shadow, and uh, the Verna other, The other character to his left is drawn in shadow. That and and all of those the vertical lines behind him. That's to me. That's very very George Perez. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much so. And, I, I I love the art on this. I, I, of course, I just I like uh, I mean, like Marshall Rogers a lot. I keep meaning to to try to track down and see if uh, if DC has ever reprinted. There was uh, right around the time of the of the first Burton Batman movie. There was a Batman strip that I know was running in the. Uh, I was living in upstate New York at the time, so I know it was the Syracuse paper, whatever that's called, Syracuse Herald or something like that. In their Sunday paper, there was a Batman strip in there. And it, the art was fantastic, but we didn't regularly subscribe to that paper, so I only ever got the strip several times. And the strip kind of gave me the impression it was actually running with continuity from the movie as opposed to the comic book version of Batman. But it, like I say, I only read it just a couple of times, so it's kind of hard to to follow exactly what was going on but i would love to know if that's ever been reprinted because i really really got a kick out of that as much as i love his uh 
Mr. Miracle, you know, it's it's definitely Batman that I'll most, you know, always most associate Marshall Rogers with, but I've got a real soft spot for this. I actually discovered Mr. Miracle uh, through DC Comics Presents because in the 12th issue of that series, he fought Superman and pretty much held his own in that fight and really captured my imagination that way in the fact that, you know, here's somebody that could kind of hold his own with Superman in a fight. And I think that story kind of has always given me kind of a false impression of the character because I've never really seen another story where he was anywhere near that power level or anything where he could stand up to, you know, to Superman. He's really just more of, uh, uh, you know, like Batman. He's got kind of Batman's escape artist shtick is essentially what he's doing. A lot of gadgets and that sort of thing. But I never got the sense that he was actually super powered or super powerful at all, really. So it's odd that in that uh, DC Comics Presents story, he was presented that way, but I got a kick out of it. So that's a really good issue, too. The art, I think it's Buckler in that, if I'm not mistaken. Really solid art. But that he, was always had, a, he was always a really good member of the Bwahaha JLA, too. Yeah. Back in the yeah. day, you know, Dimitrius Giffen run, he was always like a, a member there. Um, they did do one, that one episode of the Justice League animated uh, series, spotlighting him, I think, during Justice League Unlimited, though. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Um, I don't know. They've been good, good incarnations and bad incarnations. I, I, it was one of the first Kirby books I ever read. Was was Mister Miracle, um, that and the Captain America run he did. You know, the Mad Bomb, Arnim Solar run that Kirby did when he came back to Marvel on Captain America. But that was like a couple of the first Kirby books I ever read. So I've always had an affinity for the character. And uh, I, I, I remember the uh, the the Mike Barron and Steve Rude relaunch in the eighties of uh, Mr. Miracle. They did like about 12 or, or 18 issues. I think, you know, I think writers have a hard time getting a handle on him. You know I mean, he's kind of an odd character. Like you said, he's got Batman's uh, escape artist ability, but I mean, other than his ties to New Genesis and the New Gods and everything, he just seems like kind of a hard character for, for a writer to get a handle on. It was always hard for me to decipher exactly how he was pulling off the things that he was pulling off because I, I always had a sense that he may have been using some sort of god powers that he may have had rather than actual skill as an escape artist. And I don't know that if was that ever cleared up at all exactly how he was doing. I mean, this issue shows you, you know, shows him prepping for what he's going into and hiding gadgets on himself and things like that. But I, I know in the story with Superman they didn't really show that at all. There was a, a death trap. He was in some sort of death trap where he was like falling out of a plane strapped to a bomb or something like that. And pretty much plummets to his death only to reappear moments later, you know, hale and hearty. So it, it kind of gave me the sense that he was pulling a fast one on earth people, you know, that we thought, you know, here, wow, that's amazing. How did he do that when he was actually using some sort of, you know, powers that he had as an actual god, but uh, they were kind of vague about the whole thing. I don't know if you guys know anything about that or not. I like the character, but I, I've beyond that story and and these stories here with uh, Engelhart Rogers, I really haven't read much of him. You know, of course, you know, like Jim said, he was in the the. Uh, 
'80s incarnation of the of the Justice League, you know, the post crisis stuff. And I read a lot of that stuff too. But then when he got his own solo title, I thought they were kind of making fun of the character more than anything. He can't kind of became kind of a comedic character, and I didn't really like that take on him. So I stopped kind of following him at that point. I remember reading some of Mr. Merkel in, I believe it was in Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers. Am I uh, right in that? I think there was there was the different the four uh, the seven different four issue miniseries. I remember was it the, the Bulletier, Mister Miracle, Satana. Um, I can't remember now. But I remember that being pretty good. For the, it was just a quick four issue run. It's Frankenstein, wasn't it? Wasn't that the other one? Yeah, Frankenstein was one. Shining Knight. Frankenstein. Shining Knight. Yeah. Miracle. Satana, the something, the witch boy is five. Oh, yeah, six, yeah, yeah, Clarion, yeah, 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 yeah. Paul, what you got? Uh, no, you know what? My experience is similar to yours that I, I like the character, but I really never read any sustained run of his. Uh, and I just, like I said, I, I read this and it makes me want to read the rest of it. And that's that's as far as I can go with it, because I, I don't have a, a, a great knowledge of the character. I just really like this story, though. And and while like a couple of the tropes in it are a little old fashioned, some of the ex- exposition and whatever, I still think it's a pretty solid story. And I'll, I'll get to issue twenty, and uh, you know, at some point I'll let you guys know what I thought of that. Where does this fall in relations to um, Return of the New Gods? That that series that DC did, are they concurrent? Because I have that too. I think I have a complete run, and I don't know that I've ever finished reading it or not. I, I've always intended to, but I don't believe I actually finished uh, reading all of that. It, and that's, uh, I'm just looking. Return of the, of the New Don Gods Newton was uh, July of 1977. It started uh, Return of the New Gods, and this was. Uh, I know I forgot when this was already. Seventy. This is September of seventy-seven, so it's definitely yeah, okay. uh, around the same time. Cool. So if 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 this is a good run, it may make it worthwhile to read that one. And I I, I think at the same time that this was going on, there was also the uh, Secret Society of Supervillains. I think that's around the same right. time as well, yeah. and that tied into the Fourth World uh, at some point as well. Yeah. Have you ever read that? I've, I've read some of it, but it's very, like, my memory of it is very, very vague, to be honest with you. I just actually yeah. got the omnibus of that. They re-released it in hardcover, The Secret Society really? of Villains. Yeah, yeah. Rich Buckley it's... did quite a bit of the art in it, and uh, um, it's actually worth reading. It's pretty good. Hell my my yeah, biggest memory of that is the uh, whole Funky Flash Man uh, thing. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a certain you know cheese element. There's a certain uh, uh, campy element to some of the later stuff in that. But I I think that's a fantastic read. I got a real kick out of it. Um, I'm trying to remember. It was one of those titles, and I can't remember now if the art started out weak in the beginning and then got really good, or it started out good and then got weak toward the. I can't remember. But the art really varies in the omnibus side. The one I have is like the first. Uh... 14 issues, I think, and they're going to come out with a second volume uh, as well. But uh, the the art really varies. Like some of it's really good, and some of it just is not good at all. You can tell that it's probably a couple of months there. DC editorial just like, okay, who we got? 
you know. Right. But I, I was always a big fan of the villain books back in the day. Super villain team up mm-hmm. uh, on the Marvel side. I just got the uh, essentials of that actually, and uh, and Secret Society super villains on the DC side, and then later you know Thunderbolts and stuff like that. I, I, yeah. And uh, even now there's a book uh, Superior Foes of Spider Man. Right. Yeah. I which just I don't know if you guys up. checked out, but that was that was hilarious. Like sea level villainry, um, robbing a pet store. <laughs> It's pretty funny. Um, I've been loving the Superior Spider-Man run, which is under you know great deal of fire. But I I've really enjoyed the whole run, and I, I don't really, you know, I've said on several occasions, I just don't understand the, you know, the, what everybody's getting so upset about, you know, as if Peter Parker's never coming back. But uh, yeah, I, I I'm I'm with you, Jim. I I really liked Supervillain Team Up. I liked Secret Society Supervillains. I liked the villain stories, especially before Grim and Gritty became. A thing in comics, uh, you know, trying to show the villain's perspective of, of it without having anti-heroes and without having grim and gritty stories. Just having having the guys out there who are just pure evil for evil's sake was kind of fun, and and I miss that. You know, it's one thing to present the perspective of the villain and try and make him a understandable human character, but sometimes, you know, sometimes the villain is a villain just because he is a bad guy, right? And, and and I like you know that they do that sometimes, and they don't do it enough anymore. They they they're very big. I you know I, I understand the concept, and I agree with the concept that some of the best stories, the villain thinks he's the hero, but that doesn't mean every story has to go that way. Some you know that it's. I I know you hate uh, Dark Knight, Scott, but one of the best lines in that is uh, when they're trying to understand the Joker, and Alfred just says to him, you know, sometimes they burn the city just because they want to watch it burn. You know, and and it, there's there's some truth to that, and I'm paraphrasing that line badly, but yeah, you, you, I think you can get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that though. Yeah, I know I know the part you're talking about. Cool. So you you brought a uh, a, <laughs> a real bit a, a real interesting book to the. Uh, I brought Canuck. Canuck. <laughs> no, it's not Captain Canuck. I brought. What is uh, the technical ball, term ball, for this? Drop him, drop him <laughs> cut him out of the call. <laughs> oh, you, you're not invited until you do Captain Canuck. <laughs> it's a tough room, I'll tell you what. <laughs> no, the technical term for what I brought tonight is humdinger. You guys are going to get a kick out of this one. I'm, I'm independent. Yeah? Me too. I'm, wh- whatever you said, independent. Hey, what do you say we both be independent together, huh? Before I get into that, I've actually got a a backstory on this one a little bit. Uh, Just a few days ago, I got home from work, and I had literally a giant, I'm talking giant, box of comics waiting for me, which was really, really awesome. They were sent to be my uh, Mark Kalmbach and... uh, just awesome tons and tons of stuff in here essentially what it was was mark got in touch with me a while ago and he said dude i'm doing some cleaning out i got all this stuff i don't want it anymore um you know do you know what i could do with some uh, some comic books so that they wouldn't be homeless and you know <laughs> a t- i'm a generous kind of guy <laughs> I, I i don't like to see any comic you know left out in the cold and having to beg for food and you know that sort of thing so i said well you know i'll take them in if nobody else wants them 
So he sent this giant box to me, and there's some solid stuff in here. There's some really cool stuff. I, I picked out just a couple of my favorites out of here just to give you an idea of the kind of stuff that was in here. Um, issue number three of the $6 million man, the old Charlton book, which was an issue I didn't have. Very, very cool. Uh, Terminator, the burning earth. Number four. Is that Alex Ross? It is Alex Ross. This is his first professional yeah. work. This was for, um, what you call it now comics. And it's funny that. because I suffered through the entire now comics Terminator run. And then when it, when they canceled the book proper, I canceled my subscription, and then of course they come out with Burning Earth, which was you know, but everybody says is you know this is the book they should have been doing all along. All these years, I've still been struggling to collect all five issues. Now I'm only one issue away with this issue that uh, Mark just sent me. So one more issue, I can finally sit down and read this damn thing from start to finish. What issue um, are you looking for? Uh, I'll have to tell you. I'll have to look it up. I want to say three, but I could be wrong. But I'll, I'll look it up and let you know. Yeah, because I got some of those. Hard copies. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, you know, the, the next free box of comics I get uh, will be the first free box of comics I ever got. <laughs> All <laughs> right, you heard that, guys. Paul needs Paul needs some freebie stuff. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, because I, I hate feeling left out. Nobody should feel left out. I, you know, I've never made any secret of the fact that the whole reason I got into podcasting, I wanted free shit sent to me. And uh, <laughs> people come through, man. I get free shit in the mail all the time. It's awesome. <laughs> but amongst the awesome was some other stuff. <laughs> and Mark knows what I'm talking about. But uh, some interesting things in there. So I basically, I, I broke the stack down to several different levels. It was like, Wow. And then there was like, you know, <laughs> varying degrees down to, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure which pile I picked this out of, but really I picked this out, I'll be honest for you, for one reason. The cover intrigued me. It just looked interesting. So I picked it out and I thought, well, if nothing else, this babe on the cover is super smoking hot. So how bad could the book be? <laughs> Always a dangerous question. So this is Rejects number one from Awesome slash Hyperworks. I don't know if it's Awesome Comics. Hyperworks works, works with an X. Uh, with a, it's uh, H-Y-P-E-R, Hyper, but then the works has an E instead of an O. So it's W-E-R-K-S. Uh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't say Comics. It just, that's their name, Awesome-Hyperworks. So I think Awesome Comics would be a great name for uh, for a comics company, but that's not what it says here. I did have to look them up. I was like, I have no idea what the hell this is. I didn't know if this tied into some Wildstorm thing or image or any. I, you know, I, I've said before, I have a real blind spot when it comes to that stuff. Despite having lived and collected comics through the 90s, Somehow I just missed all this stuff. I, I don't I just I stuck in my own little corner of collecting Superman and whatever the hell else I was reading and just kind of ignored all that other shit that was going on. So all this stuff still very new to me. So I looked it up and apparently this company only was around for it was just a blip on the radar for about three years in the very late 90s. The actual date on this issue is September 1998. Cover, story and artwork by Rob Liefeld. Uh, Jeff Loeb is the writer. Tanya and Richard, 
whoever the hell they are. I, I'm thinking maybe they're like Sonny and Cher's kids or something since they don't have last names. Uh, did the colors and inks on this. Comic Craft did the lettering. Matt Hawkins was the editor. And at first I thought, oh, Matt Hawkins, that's a cool, that's like the two-gun kid, right? But no, it's not. It's close, but not quite. Rob Liefeld, president and CEO. And Jeff Loeb is the publisher. So I think that might explain some things about this company that, you know, and, and the quality of this particular issue that you've got the... Uh, the writer and the artist are basically the editors and the, the president of the company as well. But I don't know, maybe that's just me. Now the story is not titled, but it could very easily go by the name that I think of for this entire book, which is not rejects, but retreads. Uh, in fact, I, I just want you dear listener to appreciate the fact ahead of time that, I have taken the time. I took the time out of my busy day and schedule to rename for you every character in this book in order that you can better relate in this audio medium to the visuals of the characters and the original concepts that they were very obviously, let's say, inspired by. So our story begins with this guy called Scarab. That's his name in the issue. Um, he's pretty much the son of Wolverine and Nick Fury, which is an ooh kind of concept right out of the gate. <laughs> Henceforth, he shall be known as Nickarine. And he's rescuing Colossus's sister Magic from evil helicopters, and they're aboard his Akira cycle that is actually a Transformer. That's page one, so... I'm just telling you, these are the facts. So if you're lost already, all I can tell you is that I don't make the news. I just report it, okay? So now I don't know what Magic's actual superpower is in the Marvel Universe, but here it seems that she has the ability to actually stay inside her microscopic bikini at all times despite the laws of physics. Um, she carries a giant feather that everybody in the comic seems to think is a sword, and she has the awesome ability to make her tits grow and shrink from panel to panel. It's really cool. Anyway, so Nickarine drives off the page and they plummet into the ocean. Um, but not before he's able to bark orders to his bike to take out the helicopters that have been chasing them and then come up and catch up with him later on. So then he and Magic underwater run into Triton of the Inhumans who tells them that they're being pursued. That's what he does. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I kind of gathered that from the beginning of how this issue started. So they then board a submarine that is really cool because it has the ability to be a completely different shape from the back of the submarine than what was shown a panel earlier and the front view of the submarine. I don't think that's intentional, but it was kind of cool anyway. Aboard the sub, Triton and Nicarine uh, try to recruit magic. Um, for emphasis, Nickarine reveals that he is actually arm fall off boy. Magic uh, says that, you know, she says the very thing that I was thinking at this point, which is everything's happening so fast. I'm like, yeah, it is. And it doesn't make any sense. And so she asked for an adjournment so that she can go take a hot shower and uh, film in five pages. Meanwhile, 
Optimus bike destroys the copters and then swims down to join everyone else on the sub. Somewhere in that short process, he goes from actually looking a lot like just one of the actual Hasbro Transformers to actually looking like this creepy, scary robot guy. And I couldn't exactly pinpoint where exactly that happened, but I definitely noticed it by the time that we get to the shower scene. Now, the shower scene is actually awesome. It's complete with actual soapy, steamy, naked hotness, and that was pretty cool. And Optimus just stands there and watches this chick take a shower, which, (laughs) think of that what you will. So later, when she's quote-unquote dressed, she meets uh, Shaggy from Scooby-Doo, who turns out to be the resident mechanic, and he's supposedly been repairing the damage, any damage that was done to Optimus' bike. But I suspect that he was actually just making sure that the videotape came out really well. So Nickerine says that it's time for her to know the quote-unquote truth. And she interrupts him to reveal that she's already caught on to the fact that he speaks fluent cliché. And she reminds him that earlier he used the old Jack Nicholson line of you can't handle the truth, but now he's apparently had a change of heart and he wants to spill the beans. And he lets her know that he used to be Calabac of the new gods and worked for the quote unquote company. Now, I hope that it's the electric company, because otherwise I really don't give a shit at this point. I was completely lost in this story. Meanwhile, on the evil shield helicarrier known as the Imperial City, which got me to thinking, how the hell did these guys not get sued for this comic at this point? Jocasta's brother plots his evil plotty plots against, well, I was going to say our heroes, but I mean, I, I literally don't have a clue what the hell is going on. I don't know who's good, who's bad in this story, other than the bad guy kind of looks bad, so I guess he's the bad guy, but your guess is as good as mine. Anyway... Brocasta has a prisoner that he's really happy to have. And I get the feeling that she's, I, I think she's supposed to be Nicarine's sweetheart. She's essentially Jean Grey in Psylocke's costume. Mm-hmm, but, I like that. Yeah. But, you know, before we can get too concerned about, you know, the serious chafing that this costume's got to be given the crack of her ass. She's hit in the back by three of Longshot's throwing knives. So Genie Locks goes down. And the book concludes with the daughter of Harley Quinn and Typhoid Mary, who is actually called, I'm not making this shit up, guys, Tragedy Anne, standing over her body gloating. And that's it. And I, other than the shower scene, I don't know what the hell to make of this book. I really don't. I don't know what the intent was. I don't know where they were going. I don't know if this spins out of something else. But I can tell you that there's hardly a cliche left unused in this. And every single goddamn character is called from somewhere else. Every single one of them. And it's, I mean. Are you suggesting that Rob Liefeld borrowed from other work? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, still my heart. You know, Liefeld takes a lot of crap. And I got to say that I didn't hate the art. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of the art in this that I really, really liked. But he's not done himself any favors with this book. 
because as somebody who does feel like an extreme outsider on the whole Rob Liefeld thing, up till now, I've been fairly willing to defend him because what little I've seen of him, I'm like, I just don't get it. What's all the hate about? I think maybe I get a little bit more of it right now because this is just, it's not, I mean, the art, don't get me wrong, the art's fantastic, but the story's just, wow, it's completely unoriginal. (laughs) The characters are completely unoriginal. The story's not engaging at all, and things are, are completely inconsistent from panel to panel. And that really caught me right it's not quite the middle of the book but it's almost there but it's it's essentially well for one thing that that drives me nuts in this thing is it seems like every single page is a two-page spread that makes me nuts that's just a waste of space in the book it's like you're trying to hurry me through the book when you do that with every single page but there is a, a double page uh splash here with the submarine that they board and I don't know what made me think about it, but I'm looking at the submarine thinking, oh, that's a pretty unique design. That's actually pretty cool. And then on the last panel, where they're driving away in the same submarine, I realized, all right, it looks completely different from the back than it looks from the front. And unless the thing transformed or something, which they don't comment on, there's, there's no reference to that here then he's just damn sloppy that he didn't draw it the same way from front to back. That That's just silly to me. That That's just sloppy to me. So I'm literally left walking away from this book not knowing what to think of it. But uh, I'll tell you what. I mean, this was at a time, you know, people laugh about it and make jokes about it, but it was very true. This was at a time when the books that were, you know, the quote-unquote hot books at the time were all about, you know, big guns, big tits, that sort of thing. And he gives the reader just what they want because he doesn't shy away from it. I mean, the shower scene is a shower scene. It's not full frontal noodle, uh, nudity, but, uh, you know, she's, uh, she's naked in these shots. I mean, it's bare ass, bare tits. And uh, I was like, wow, I just wasn't really expecting to see that, especially on a, on a book that, uh, there's no label on it. There's no warning, no nothing. Also, uh, there's no price on this. How the hell did you know when you picked this up off the shelves how much you were going to be paying for it? There's no barcode. Sure, you sure it nothing. wasn't a free a free insert with Hero Magazine? Or that could be. Maybe polybagged with your wizard? or It, it absolutely could be. It, you know, now that you say that, that actually makes a lot of sense. This may be some form of preview issue. I hadn't thought of that, but you could be right. But that being the case, that may, it seem that would seem to me that it makes the nudity issue, you know, the nudity in the middle of the issue, that much more of an issue overall. If this was some sort of freebie given out, where parents would have no warning that, you know, <laughs> the latest issue of you know, Wizard or Hero Illustrated or whatever has naked women right in the middle of it, you know? Well, I mean, they'd have, like, Lady Death and Dawn ash cans and stuff. I mean, that's pretty much masturbatory fodder as well. I mean... Yeah, it's true. Uh, I mean, they're in the height of the 90s. That was when I got out of the hobby for a while just because I got tired of, 
you know, chromium covers and holograms and, you know, whatever the next big thing that we, you know, they were telling me was this week. It's, it's got really tired of it and got out of the hobby for a while, but that's kind of uh, indicative of why. Like, that whole image boom was great for, for independent creators at the start, but it just kind of boiled down to this, like, lowest common denominator of Marvel ripoffs, like, like rejects or whatever, um, after a while. And it just, I don't know. It took me a while to get back into the hobby after that. Mm, I can see why. Yeah, it's funny. I, I had gotten out in the later 80s, and I actually got back in during the heyday of all of that crap. But luckily, I never got pulled in to spend you know obscene money on anything because it had a chromium cover or anything like that. I, I, I you know, I don't always. Uh, I'm not. I'm not always the smartest guy in the room, but every once in a while, I'm, I, 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 you know, do the smart thing. And in this instance, I did uh, the smart thing, and I forgot about a lot of that crap and just didn't bother with it. Uh, this book, just from your description of it, makes my head hurt, though. <laughs> and and no, nobody. There are, a lot of, a lot, there are a lot of panels with the feet cut off. Because I mean, no, that's it, big uh, um, criticism is that he doesn't like to draw feet. I, I've heard that about him, so I actually made a conscious effort to pay attention to feet. And it's not, I mean, they're not great, but they're not bad. I mean, the, the very first full nude shot of the woman in the shower shows her from top to bottom, including her feet. And the very first thing I thought was, all right, well, there's nothing. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, there is. <laughs> so it's like one of her feet. You can you can fully see and it looks yeah, it looks all right. It looks a little large for a woman's foot, and then the other one almost looks like she only has two toes. So yeah, it is a little bit funny. Scott Gardner, yeah. Footman. <laughs> no, not at all. But it does look like he he goes out of his way with his panels and with his positioning of people not to have to draw their feet if he can if he can get away with it. I found some pictures and I posted them up there. I think I have one of these comic books somewhere. It looks familiar. I don't think I've read it. I think I got it in a bundle of stuff. Although <laughs> I may have gotten rid of it in a bundle of stuff, too. I don't know. Now that I think about it, I might have given it to a, a whole box of stuff like this to like a little kid at, at a yard sale. I didn't want to hold on to the box anymore. Like, kid, just take this. <laughs> I think he was like eight or nine. <laughs> Surprise! Mom and Dad, when he got home. Whoops. <laughs> I, I think I speak for everybody though when I say uh, nobody wants to see Rob Liefeld draw anybody's full front, full frontal noodle. Noodle. <laughs> it's a slip of the you tongue. I think the weirdest book foot. I have, the weirdest book I have, uh, one of the weirdest books I have, is uh, the Judgment Day storyline, written by Alan Moore, drawn by Rob Liefeld. It's it's mm. incredible. It's just like the weirdest mishmash of. Uh, you know, really, you know, great writing and terrible, terrible art you can think of. It's using the young blood characters, they're trying to relaunch them. Um, in the late '90s, I found the trade at like half price books, and I had to get it just for such an oddity, you know. See, and for the most part, I don't think I, I, I may be in the minority, but I don't think Rob Liefeld's art is that terrible. I, I no, think, I don't I think either. It's often it's often very engaging. Uh, it may be simplistic in its thought process to some extent, you know, big guns and big boobs. Uh, 
but you know, usually it's somewhat pleasing to the eye when he doesn't like totally screw up, uh, you know, the anatomy and and perspective. Uh, Heroes reborn, Captain America. Anyone? Yeah, we 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 actually had an episode where we did issue one of that, and uh, you know we 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 went on and on and on about some of the uh, lack of perspective on uh, on the anatomy. But for the on 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 a whole, we actually enjoyed the. Did I cut off there for a second? Sorry. No, you're all right. But you know, for the most part, we enjoyed it. But you know, like I said, I'm I'm not a, a Liefeld hater. Uh, which a lot of people out there are, yeah. uh, but I do see, you know, I mean, some of his weaknesses are are obvious, and there is a little bit of an arrogance there that, like, it almost seems like he can't be bothered to work to correct the weaknesses. I don't know if I'll I don't know. Everybody always looks like they're either angry or squinting in his art. Either they're mad or they can't see. <laughs> well, maybe they're mad that they can't see. Exactly. Yeah, that would piss me off, I'll tell you right now. Like, he would do a good old man comic. Ah, get off my lawn. Ah, I can't see you, you, kids. Who posted this link here? Oh, you did, Paul. If you look at these images here in this link that you posted, there's that number 27 right there. It's uh, what we're looking at, folks. I can't give you the whole address here because it's a mile long. But basically, if you Google 40 more of the worst Rob Liefeld drawings, which is a horrible name for an article. Um, this is 30 through 21. Number 27 here. You see the guy with the with the weird what the the hell is that? mohawk, whatever. The, yeah. Look at that sword. Does that not look more like a giant feather than a sword because of the little crackly stuff he's got on the sword itself? Yeah, I guess that's supposed to be indicative of it being, you know, a very old metal or something. Yeah, like dinged up. Yeah. But the the full body, I'm not talking about the, the inset, but the full body shot right there with those dings in the sword the way they are, to me, it looks like he's gi- he's holding a giant feather, you know, like a, like a feather pen or something. It doesn't look like a sword. And that drove me nuts in this issue I'm looking at because magic has that i think it's the same sword and there's a close-up with her where she's like leaping off the motorcycle holding that sword and there's so much line work and those cracks and dings in the sword that it, it just doesn't look like what it's supposed to be it looks like a giant feather and it just that makes that panel which would be otherwise pretty cool <laughs> look completely ridiculous well, speaking Plus, of that just, same, hmm? speaking of that same photo or that same drawing, the hilt doesn't match the sword. the The hilt handle should be straight with the blade. Yeah, right. it's kind of coming off at an angle. And it's off at an angle. I mean, that's you know, I guess if you want to make a sword that way, you could. But <laughs> it'd be awful, awfully awkward, I would think. Unless, it like unless it is an old sword and the hilt broke a little or it bent. Let's let's write yeah. our backstory here. He's also got kind of a pinhead, which I don't think is necessarily intentional. <laughs> Maybe it's the hair makes him look like a pinhead. No, I think it's his proportioning. Look at the size of his legs. Look at the size of his head. Well, yeah. he's wearing I think leg maybe, armor. Not, yeah, I think <laughs> it's his boots. He's got the same problem this chick does. It looks like her boots are heavier than her. You know, Just one of her boots is heavier than her entire body. Uh, let me tell well, you, they're, go, they're made for walking. Go, <laughs> go go to 
Go to picture 25 if you want to see some big boots. Uh-oh. 25. <laughs> I'm going the wrong way. Yeah, yeah that's terrible. To get it. That's, uh... What character is that? Damn. I don't Shatterstar, know. isn't it? Is that Shatterstar? No, that's no, that's one of those young blood guys. I have no idea what their names are. I, I think that's Heavyfoot. <laughs> Heavyfoot. All right, well, scroll down to the next one. You see, now now I'm st- starting to this sound like I'm bashing podcast. Yeah, and I don't want to bash the guy. But all right, but just one more picture. If you scroll down to the next one, number 24 right there, tell me that wouldn't chafe. And I've asked my wife this. When I've seen outfits <laughs> like this, I just I asked her, I said, be honest, what would that feel like? And she's like, yeah, you, know, you wouldn't want to wear that. Now, you know, I the, think the, the chick in the back, she's also got a pinhead. Yeah, and I also think she's got a pin down there, too, because it's like she's got some extra... <laughs> Domino's carrying some extra junk in the front there. I don't know. Hey, it actually has the uh, the plot of Rejects uh, here on the page. <laughs> Does it? Oh, yeah. You want to hear it? It's just There's a, a, a plot? short paragraph. Yeah. Here's the plot of Rejects from Wikipedia. The, the world is ruled by a dictator named Lord Sharp. Fighting against his ruler, a band of mutants and cyborgs called Rejects. They are led by a man named Scarab. Scarab previously worked for Lord Sharp, but rebelled against his master when he encountered an angel during one of his missions. Wow. That's deep. Okay, I didn't gather any of that from this. <laughs> Lord Sharp is the guy that is a male Jocasta. I'm not making that up. If you if you look the guy up, if you can find an image of him somewhere, it's it's Jocasta as a man. Are we sure that's um, not Lord Char- Sharpay? <laughs> Sharpay. <laughs> it does have the E on the end. <laughs> it could be Sharpay. It be pronounced Sharpay. Uh, Scarab is the guy that I named Nickarine because he is literally the combination of Wolverine and Nick Fury. And I don't even know, know how that works. Uh, who else? Oh, they don't mention anybody else by name. So they didn't even mention the girl. What the, the girl's so important in this issue, supposedly, and she's not even mentioned in the in the synopsis of what the hell the story. I don't know. I, I didn't get it. I really didn't know what the hell this was all about. And I'll keep it just because I really like the shower scene. But beyond that. It did not inspire me to want to read number two, which, uh, you know, ultimately isn't that kind of the mission of a number one issue is to make you intrigued enough to at least pick up the next issue, if not subscribe. And it completely failed on that level because I don't give a shit at all what happens to these people beyond this because I'm pretty sure I've read this story before. I think it was called Marvel Comics. Only it was done better in every way. Pretty much. I'm looking at one through ten. (laughs) You know what? We could do a whole Uh, podcast on this and forget that. (laughs) Right. But no, I I do want to stress that I don't I don't just I don't have you know I almost feel like. I really don't even have a horse in this race because I have long said that I don't get it. I don't get the whole hate of, of Liefeld. I mean, because I see some pictures here. I'm like, you know, that's not too bad. You know, with a little more practice, a little bit of work, you know. Well, there's this one picture <laughs> a little here. Bit more, of, practice a little bit more work. This guy could actually have a career. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, we're he, he's the one laughing. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not us. Although I don't see anything wrong with number ten. <laughs> so I'm looking at twenty-two, and I don't think it's. I don't think it's. Although the the comment here says, uh, "Is your left calf supposed to be thicker than your waist?" So I, I guess that's an issue. But I mean, comics do that kind of shit all the time. Why are they calling out this one guy on that? I don't know. I think it's unfair. But anyway, poor Rob. <laughs> I know. I do feel bad for the guy. Of course, from what I hear about him, I guess he he brings a lot of it onto himself. So I don't know, but that's just hearsay. But that's all I got. I yeah. hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> I I can't. I enjoyed discussing it. I don't think I would enjoy reading it. So uh, thanks for coming on with us, Jim. I really uh, enjoyed having you. Well, thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm you know I'm, I'm usually available after the baby's asleep. So. If you ever want me on again, just uh, you know, send out the bat signal or whatever. Or send me an email, whatever's easier. I definitely would would love to put you on the rotation for when we need a, a fill in. Definitely, uh, with your uh, new arrival coming up, you may not be uh, quite as available because sleep time may be hard to come by for a little while. Yeah, we're pretty lucky with the first. So. Which which usually bodes poorly for the second. <laughs> but I, I wish you the best on that. That's for, that's for sure. Well, thank you very much. All right. Well, it was nice to meet you, Mr. Dietz. I, I've listened to you on Legion of Dudes and and enjoyed everything that you put out. Well, thank you very much. It's very kind. I'm, I'm glad there's somebody out there uh, listening to all my blather. So <laughs> I will blather on, sir. I will blather on. Please do. As I, as I hope you will, too. Oh, it's hard to Let's stop try. us from blathering. <laughs> but uh, you keep blathering, we'll keep listening to you blather. Sounds like a good plan. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.